welcome to Karen the Load podcast. I am so excited to have both Mark with us and Chelsea. Hey. Chelsea is a licensed clinical social worker who has a deep love and passion for working with children, teens, and families. She loves supporting them on their individual journeys toward growth and healing. Chelsea believes everyone has the ability within them to heal and and building a secure attachment is an essential component of the process. Chelsea's favorite part of the therapeutic process is watching her clients love and own their stories. One of her favorite quotes is by Brene Brown, where she says, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Chelsea has experienced working with people of all ages, life circumstances, and cultures. Some of her memorable work experience has been working with adolescent girls in residential treatment centers and children in foster care. She has received training in EMDR, play therapy, DBT, CBT, and trauma-focused CBT. Among these, she also enjoys incorporating art sand tray, and attachment-focused modalities into her work. Chelsea enjoys using a variety of these modalities to best meet the needs of her clients. Chelsea received her bachelor's degree in social work from Utah State University. She went on to receive her master's degree in social work from the University of Utah with an emphasis in child welfare. Chelsea loves to travel, visit our national parks, hike, and spend time with her friends and family. So thank you for joining us. Just, Chelsea's amazing. And like I said in her official bio, she is someone who grew up around the corner from where we raised our family and actually, we just adopted her as as one of our one of ours. So thank you. Thanks for adopting me. I loved growing up at your guys' house. <laughs> it's fun to um, be Aunt Nettie over yes. here. So thank you. Chelsea is a licensed clinical social worker, and she has spent the last several years um, working in treatment centers, helping troubled youth. And and now full time um, working in in a uh, clinical setting where she actually manages an office with how many therapists do you have there? There are seven therapists there. Seven therapists and needing many more. They are booked out, and it's just exciting to see. It's exciting to see the gifts that you've been given and you using those gifts to help others. Yeah. Chelsea, I've got a question for you. Okay. Uh, you said that uh, you've got uh, so many people trying to get in to see a therapist. Is there more people right now that uh, are are looking at uh, therapy as a uh, as, as a means of feeling better than maybe before because of the pandemic? Yes, I would definitely say it's because of the pandemic, but I also think that we are doing a better job overall just normalizing mental health. So I think the pandemic definitely pushed people to reach out. But I also think it's just becoming commonplace that we talk about it more. And what a blessing because for so, so many years, well, really forever until now, 
it was kind of taboo to talk about mental health. And, and now I think it has been the pandemic that everyone felt this stress and anxiety and it became something that people started talking about. Mm -hmm. We've probably seen a lot of uh, issues in the last week or so, which makes this a really timely type of a conversation. We've seen two mass shootings. Oh yeah, and uh, that's been something that uh, obviously has been has been on the news. It's mm-hmm. been in a lot of people's uh, thoughts, and you wonder why these kind of things seem to go in spurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer for why they go in spurts, but I think it's always an interesting conversation because we like to blame mental health for why these things happen, and there might be some truth to that. I've not done the research myself, but I also think that something that's common with all these people who are the abuser or the fun shooting is usually there's a lot of loneliness that they're experiencing, which I just think is interesting because God did not place us on this earth to be alone. He placed us here to connect with other people and to be with others. I completely agree with that. And that's one of the things with care of the load, one of our three things, inspire, grow and connect Mm -hmm. and connect is the most vital piece to, to care on the load and really to all of our lives. Mm And it would be such a sad, lonely world to not be able to connect. And I think, honestly, that's part of why people with this pandemic, that lack of connection, Mm -hmm. that's what kind of pushed everybody over the edge. So it just validates, again, what you just just said. Mm -hmm. How in your... In your counseling, and I know I'm not asking specifics because we can't talk about that, (laughs) nor do I want you to talk about that, but just what are some things that you know help others to get out of that loneliness? What can they do? What if they are just so paranoid, but Mm -hmm. it really comes down to loneliness? How do we overcome loneliness? Mm Loneliness is, I don't know, I would say that's with the emotion, if I could choose not to feel one, it would be loneliness, (laughs) because it's such a crappy feeling to feel. And I think something we need to recognize is that we are all more similar than we are different. And typically, when we're feeling lonely, we're thinking, oh, why aren't people reaching out to me? Or why isn't so and so thinking of me when we're all thinking that? And so it's just taking that first step to reach out, even if it is over social media, or an email, just whatever feels more comfortable, just taking that first leap. It is a leap. (laughs) No, it totally is. Yeah. It's frightening to do that. I know for me, you know, going, for us moving, you know, that was one of my biggest fears to move where we had, you know, lived and were your neighbors for so many years. We'd lived in the same home for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And, And when all of a sudden we're moving, because we just went for a drive and felt like we were supposed to move. It's kind of unique, isn't it? And my fear about it was actually, I don't know what people will think of me. Mm-hmm. And that, that loneliness fear. And, and we had to consciously talk about what can we do to help us in our new situation. Now, the interesting thing is that we were able to identify it between the two of us because we've known each other. We've been married for 37 years. But what are some of the things, Chelsea, that are common characteristics that you see in a clinical situation with people that are feeling that loneliness? I would say some things that we see is isolation, definitely, but also a lack of interest in things that you typically enjoy doing um, or just even 
drastic mood swings can be another sign that that's going on for you, um, especially if that's out of characteristic for you. Mm-hmm. I'd say those are probably the three main ones that we see. So, so that's interesting because I think that we're all probably thinking as we're listening to you that we all go through that. Yes. yes. So when do we know when tr- that we're in trouble? I, I just want to validate that. I think that is something that we all go through and life throws us curveballs all the time. So I would say I would look at the duration for how long that's lasting. Um, and if it's impacting relationships or impacting your work or the quality of life you want to be living. So Chelsea, you bring up some great points. And, you know, as you talk about some of those characteristics of maybe not feeling maybe the way that we have in the past, mm-hmm. you have seen people come in. And what are some of the characteristics you are personally seeing mm-hmm. of uh, those that might be struggling, maybe more so than they ever have before in their life? Mm-hmm. I would say isolation, rapid mood swings, and a lot of extra irritability is some of the more common ones that we see. One of the ones I've heard as well is uh, people don't enjoy doing some of the things that they typically enjoy. Yes, yes, definitely. So all I can say is that we've probably all been through a point in the last 12 months where we've all felt this way. So Mm -hmm. how do I know when I might need a little extra help? Mm -hmm. And I I love that you said that. And I hope that that brings some normalcy to it because we all have felt that way. Even myself, I felt that way and have had to reach out to my resources. So I would say we know when we need help when the duration is lasting longer or when it's impacting relationships or your work or whatever other responsibilities you have during the day, just your overall quality of life is being impacted. So Annette and I have been married for 37 years. We, we talk about that often, don't we? we do. And we, we've learned a lot about each other in 37 years. But while I can see what's going on with Annette and she can see what's going on with me, maybe we don't see that as much. Maybe we're not looking for it for those mm-hmm. that we love or those that are around us. Mm-hmm. What can we do as non-clinicians just being friends and family to look for those kinds of things and, and give us some ideas as what we might be able to do to help them. Mm-hmm. One of my best and favorite tools as a therapist is a very simple one. It's just to be curious. I think the thing we all want the most is to be understood by other people. And I think even just sitting with somebody and being curious about what they're saying with as little judgment as you can offer and just asking them more or you know, seeing those questions like, can you tell me more about that? Or, oh, I was curious about this. What does that mean? And I think in those moments, even if they're not going to tell you what's going on for them, doesn't it feel the best when somebody understands you? I think there's no better feeling than feeling understood by somebody. I love that. And I love, it's a different way to let them know that you care. Mm-hmm. When you are curious, and curious in a good way, like you said, mm-hmm. not judging them. And, and just, you really do care mm-hmm. and you're curious about them and their life and what's going on and and hopefully we all are doing that with our friends throughout throughout our lives not just when we think something is off right because if they see that we're curious and we care and and we want to be engaged in in what's going on in their lives then it's not this awkward thing too right yeah, it just becomes a normal conversation that you're just checking in on your friend or your yeah. family member. And I love when you talked about, you know, Mark, you said that, you know, when do I know it's time that I might need some help? And Chelsea, you said something about we all get that way. Mm-hmm. And how you that's when you know it's time to look at your resources. 
So I think personally, it's something that we all need to build these resources. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that we all have a therapist's phone number in our in our you know speed dial on our phone, but that we need to have resources in our toolbox to help us when we get feeling a little down. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you think might be wise to have in our toolbox or as resources? Um, I, I mean, having somebody's phone number is always a great resource, even if it's not a therapist. I often joke that some of my friends are my therapists because we just need those people that we connect to. Um, I would also say that having things that you enjoy doing and forcing yourself in some of those moments to do them, whether it's picking simple things like going for a walk and then just naming five things that you enjoy seeing on that walk. Or um, I play the violin and that's a big release for me and making myself play the violin. So I think the more you can create um, connections, the better that you've got more people to rely on. So Chelsea, there's a couple of elephants in the room here. Okay. (laughs) The the first elephant is... Nobody likes to be vulnerable. No, <laughs> and no. So, and so if I'm struggling, I got to tell you, probably one of the last things I'm going to do, and especially as a guy probably, is <laughs> going to be vulnerable and say, I am really suffering. Right. So the other elephant is, as, as a helper, as a friend, what can we do without being obnoxious? And saying, what is wrong with you? Uh, I mean, there's got to be a subtle way of being able to help those. I mean, I'm sure that there have been a lot of people. I mean, you hear it all the time. If only I could have seen what was going on with this person while -hmm. they were struggling. You know, you hear that with suicides all the time. If only I could have identified. Help us out here. Yeah. So first I want to just go back to the shame that you're alluding to that we feel when we don't want to speak up. So all emotions have a function. They're meant to get us to act, right? So if women were angry in the past, I wouldn't have the right to vote today, but it took somebody feeling angry about that to push them towards action. So when we look at shame and the action that that causes, it's usually to hide that we don't want people to see because if we think about Back in the day when hunters and gatherers were here, they functioned in groups and we function in groups too. And a lot of how our responses are is because of that. And so if they were to be, to do something bad, they would have literally been kicked out of their group. So I think first understanding that that's your function, right, is to hide. And that's why you're doing what you're doing. Um, And maybe recognizing that in other people too, that that's why they're not maybe going to name what's going on for them. Um, So things that we could do as outsiders um, is to be available. I would say that would be the number one. Um, I think sometimes even self-disclosing too, that we're having a hard time. I watch that all the time in therapy and it's obviously a balance as a therapist to not say everything that I've gone through, but just to invite them to be vulnerable with you as you're sharing that vulnerability, I think is a really powerful tool. And, and, and you don't have to share mm-hmm. the details for them to know that you understand. Mm-hmm. And, and that builds trust that that lack of feeling alone or that I'm weird because I feel that way. Mm-hmm. But shame, you know, when you're talking about those different feelings and the the purpose behind them, shame is shame is a big one. Mm-hmm. And and it's something to recognize, you know, a lot of the things for a lot of years I was operating out of shame or out of fear. And that those weren't healthy places to operate from. 
but it also took a feeling to get me to a point to get help and to seek help. And why do I operate out of shame and fear? Mm-hmm. And and I think so. You know, I love that you identified that there's there's a purpose be- behind these different emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I also believe is that if you would share your concern, your frustration with someone else, they're not going to look at you as weak. No. They're not going to throw you out of the group. Right. And, and uh, you know, that would be a concern, I think. But they're not going to throw you out of the group. But how do we, how do we consist of being able to continue to move forward in the group without uh, showing all of our, our shame? without uh, showing all of uh, you know, the, the things that are concerning to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'll first say that I know those feelings. I know those feelings to live with shame and operate by shame. I think we all know those feelings and they're very familiar to us. So, you know, there's this quote by Maya Angelou that I can't recite myself, but she basically says that you realize you belong everywhere when you realize you belong nowhere but with yourself. And I think that's part of it is being able to tolerate your own shame and recognizing that 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 is there and that it's okay that it's there because we all have it. One of the blessings for me of this, of the pandemic, really was learning to be be okay with myself, Mm -hmm. being my own best friend. And, and it was okay. You know, I had to learn to be okay with all of those feelings, whether it was shame, you know, all of the things that, that were going on. But when I did, it was like this whole new world opened up because I didn't have to always stay busy. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to always have someone around Mm -hmm. or the TV on or, you know, something. I just, it was okay for it to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's been a great blessing, but it's exactly goes along with that quote. Yeah. And I think the pandemic threw us all for a loop where we all had to learn that. I was in Hawaii when the pandemic started and had to come home. I didn't know that. (laughs) Oh gosh, you should just see my poor mom. She was like, you need to come home. You're going to get stuck. But um, I ended up having to quarantine because nobody knew what was going on and um, just out of precaution. Right. And it threw me for a loop because I'm a, I mean, I grew up in a family of nine. I'm a very social person. And I think it gave us all the opportunity to practice being in a relationship with ourselves. And something I learned in that time that was most helpful to help me develop a better relationship was just to keep commitments to myself. How often do we wake up in the morning and we're like, I'm going to go running today. And then we don't go running today. (laughs) But then if a friend did that to us, we would see them as flaky or you know, any other adjective, right? But that was a powerful tool for me to just realize to keep commitments to myself of what I was promising myself. I'm sorry that you had to quarantine in Hawaii. That must have been rough. <laughs> well, I mean, I had to come home to quarantine. <laughs> she had to leave Hawaii. I had to leave Hawaii. Early to come home. <laughs> we just had to tragic. cancel our trip to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's even worse. <laughs> so, so Chelsea... Self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how important self-awareness and, is, and and uh, you know maybe maybe there's some tools when it comes to self-awareness that we could talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say a tool would first off just be sitting with yourself, I guess. So I think oftentimes we don't recognize emotions or body sensations. We often just are paying attention to what's in our head. So first, just even sitting with your body and recognizing just different sensations you might feel um, will then help you to start recognizing maybe how you're coming across to other people and 
even just watching other people's reactions to things you're doing can be helpful too. What are some of the things that you teach your clients that help them to like themselves? I'm I'm assuming that a lot of kids that you see, teenagers, really have a hard time liking themselves. Maybe they've listened too much to what friends have said about them or to them. And, and so at this point, they're like, well, you know, I'm dumb or I don't like myself. Or how do you help them learn to like themselves? I love that question because that definitely is something I see with all of my teenagers that I work with. And even some of my littles, I feel like I'm seeing it younger and younger with little kids. But um, I first off usually start talking to them and teaching them that we were not born with those thoughts. We God didn't place a little baby on the earth thinking I'm dumb or I'm stupid or I'm not lovable. We learned that somewhere. And I think that there's a lot of compassion that we can offer ourselves that a little child learned that at a young age. Um, Because prior to the age of about nine or 10, kids can only think in black and white. So when things happen, we often categorize it in good or bad, which translates to I'm good or I'm bad. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that, and I think about my little nieces and nephews who are around that age, who I adore, I would never look at Lucy or Afton or Lila or Harper and say, you're dumb or you're stupid. And I would never want a child to continue to grow up believing that. So I think if I just try and help them to see them in that little childlike way, right. That they can have that compassion Mm -hmm. for themselves. Um, And then I love to do a lot of experiential things with my clients. So just even exploring art, even if they hate it or exploring music, just because that gets you out of your body and into another realm that you have to kind of push yourself to explore who you are. You talked about one of your tools was playing the violin Mm -hmm. and the music, which I love because when you think of the motion that it takes to play the violin, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't just be still. The bow is going back and forth and, and, and I'm sure you just kind of feel it. And so you might be swaying back and forth, but then you have what resonates from those strings that mm-hmm. will also resonate in your body. And then you talk about the art and the art therapy. You know, one of the things that um, we have done that has made a huge difference in in our life is Kintsuchi. Oh, yeah. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Kintsuchi, it's a in ancient Japanese art where, you know, if you see a, a broken piece of pottery, for us today, typically we just sweep it, sweep it up and throw it away. But this art of Kintsuchi is they they clean it up, they they pick up all the pieces, they 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 clean the dirt, they clean the shards, they do all these things, and then they carefully mend it back together with this precious, precious metal. Not quickly either. No, it's, it's really not. And what happened for me and what they teach in this, this art of Kintsuchi is they make um, those scars become more valuable, more precious. And when I started to look at this bowl as me and, and, and seeing that the beauty that came from those scars, it made a huge difference in in my healing journey. Is that something that you've ever used with with your clients? 
It is. I actually went to an expressive play therapy training probably two years ago and learned about this art form. And now it's one of my most favorite interventions to do with my clients. Um, because you have, I don't know how you were taught, but the way I was taught is I have them actually break their own mm-hmm. plate or their bowl, whatever item we choose. And then I have them actually name each piece of their pottery as something hard they've gone through. And it's interesting to watch them put it back together because it's, it is very hard. It's very time consuming and you literally have to hold it and force it, not force it necessarily, but you have to be very tender with it to get it to go back together and to be, to get it to be the plate again or the bowl again. And it's interesting to watch clients do it because those same negative th- thoughts they'd say when they were going through those scars come up. But then once they recognize it, it's interesting and really powerful to watch them switch it. And um, I think that, I think it's a powerful art form for many reasons. But for me, I don't think God wants us to go through hard things because he's trying to punish us or teach us something. But we go through hard things. And because of that, we get to choose to make something out of it. And we get to choose to find the beauty in that and to be worth more because we went through hard times. I'll take that just one step further. Annette, do you remember the first Kintsushi bowl that we did? That we rushed through trying to put it together? Yeah. You know, we, we, we broke this <laughs> it looks bowl. looks terrible. We broke, <laughs> we, we broke the bowl and uh, we, we began to... Uh, to uh, piece it back together and glue it back together. Our objective, I think, was to get it done in 10 minutes. Oh, gosh. And, <laughs> and we still have that bowl, and we look at it, recognizing that maybe like life, too, mm-hmm. we can't change things. We can't mend our lives quickly, although that seems to be one of the things that we try to do is we mm-hmm. try to, you know, we're an on-demand society, mm-hmm. and we want to achieve whatever it's trying to be that we're trying to do. We try to achieve that as quickly as we can. Do you remember the last Kintsuchi bowl that we did, Annette? It took us some time. It wasn't just a one-night thing that we did. And there was something you said, Chelsea, in, in how you learned and you were taught about this. I I didn't know how to do it. I just kind of looked some things up and because I was just fascinated with it. And I thought, okay, let's just take a hammer and break it and we'll do this and that. And <laughs> yeah. But when you talk about holding these pieces and naming the pieces, mm-hmm. okay, that's even taking it a step further and something that I'm going to suggest to people in our course from Broken to Beautiful, because that's actually one of the exercises they do is this Kintsuchi experience and they get a kit from us. But there's something resonated with me when you labeled mm-hmm. these pieces. Mm-hmm. And then when you talked about holding them, because that's the exact opposite of what we've done, what mm-hmm. I did. I didn't hold on to those. I didn't want to hold on to them. Right. It was like a hot potato. You know, <laughs> get rid of that thing. But there's got it, there's power in in that. Yeah. So I when I learned about this, I had to do it myself. That's the best part of it being a therapist is you go to trainings to do your own therapy. <laughs> and um I was mad because mine broke in four perfect pieces and I wanted it to Shatter. Shatter. Yeah. Not, I didn't necessarily want it to shatter, but I just feel like that's my life. Like everything always just looks perfect and easy to the outsider. And it's not because again, we have our own scars, but it was interesting as I put it back together, my smallest piece, it was the hardest to get back together. I had named it my, my biggest scar and it took me forever to get it in there because I was fighting it and not <laughs> wanting it to go back together. Cause I think there's always that part of you that doesn't want to accept mm-hmm. that scar. And you brought up something else with that is that your life on the outside looks perfect mm-hmm. to everybody else. And we, I mean, it, it, we've all heard it said about Facebook and everybody puts this perfect face on. Mm-hmm. 
And that's another thing with carrying the load is we're here to be vulnerable. We're here to show that life is hard, but there's hope. And it does bring out the beauty. And and I know, because I've known you, that you've experienced some hard things. Mm-hmm. And um and things that that would cause scars. Mm-hmm. But people don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a hard thing, and it's not that you've tried to hide it. It's just that they don't want to see. And and so here's this beautiful experience you had doing Kintsuchi, mm-hmm. and that it's interesting that the littlest piece was your biggest challenge or experience or whatever, but yet it was the hardest to to put in. Mm-hmm. An awful metaphor, but I think in that moment, as I put it back, it really struck me how much I was operating from that shame with that piece of my story and how I that piece will always be part of my story. I can't make that piece go away. But because of that piece of my story, I'm who I am today. And I'm grateful for that piece. And I'm grateful for the opportunities it gave me to learn and to be more compassionate. Amen. I want to go back for a minute with something you said a few minutes ago as you were talking about children and their emotional mm-hmm. resilience. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when our children were small, one of the things as parents that we tried to do was to try to help them establish emotionally, emotional resilience. They would come home sometimes from school and uh, someone was, was a bully. Someone was mean. Someone said something that wasn't true. But here we are a few years later, and it's not just children that are dealing with that anymore. We just went through an election cycle where people were called everything and more. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it just probably laid so many scars with so many people there. How can we build emotional resilience when life isn't fair around us? Because mm-hmm. the world isn't fair and it's never going to be fair. Um, and there's nothing yeah, that we really can change about that. Um, I think one of the best coping skills that I can ever teach somebody is to be able to tolerate their emotions and to be able to hold their emotions. And I think part of that is looking for that service or ways to get involved or exercising. Our bodies are the coolest because they hold on to so much emotion. But if we think about a hamburger or something sitting in our stomach for days, that's not good for our body. And neither is that anxiety or that emotion. We got to get our bodies moving to help it to move through our bodies. That's a great, great analogy. And, you know, I'm a perfect example of what can happen to your body if you don't move through things. And and the tension that your body, you know, holding on to cer- certain things, it, it kind of breaks down at times and it becomes weak in certain areas. And, and then you have to work through that mm-hmm. and you can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. And it might be going to the doctor. It might be having uh, some medication. It might be that they prescribed going out and exercising. You know, there's so many different things that help us to help our bodies to move, which ultimately help those emotions and those feelings to move too. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say, Chelsea, that we all experience a little bit of PTSD? I would say yes, but I'm a trauma therapist, so maybe I'm biased. But yes, I think so. And and if so, as we experience, and we were just talking about uh, bullies and mm-hmm. some of the things that uh, Earth said that are unfair, that can cause PTSD, I'm sure. Oh, yes, definitely. 
Uh, but there are other there are other uh, avenues that can create PTSD as well. How can we recognize when we're dealing with something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of well, I'm first just going to tell you some of the diagnostic criteria, I guess, because one of I think when we think of PTSD, we often think of flashbacks, which is definitely a criteria of PTSD. But something we don't ever talk about is what's called disassociation, which the best example I can give you is when you're driving on the freeway and you miss your exit because you're an autopilot. That's a small form of disassociation. We all just do it on a spectrum. And when we're going, when we've been through PTSD, we usually do it on a larger spectrum. That's and, so interesting how yeah. that's explained. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. You're good. So I would say recognizing that or, um, you know, that feeling when you walk in a room and you can tell the energy of the room, you're like, I'm gonna get out of here or I'm going to join. So that's some hypervigilance that we all experience too. And obviously that's a very adaptive thing to be able to walk into a room and know what's going on, but recognizing, is this making me stop what I'm doing? Am I wanting to shut down? Am I wanting to run away? Cause that's probably when it's not adaptive anymore and it's not helping you out. Or if you're avoiding talking about what you went through or avoiding things that remind you of what you went through, that's other signs of some PTSD, even just traits of it, even if you don't have a full diagnosis. But do we go through that PTSD sometimes and and uh, we walk into that room thinking that we understand the circumstances and maybe we don't? Yes, I think so all the time. I think we make judgments based on what we're maybe observing when you really can't know what somebody else is feeling without asking them. I can observe that somebody rolled their eyes at me, but I don't know that that actually means they're angry at me or that they're annoyed with me. So I think a lot of times we're probably wrong. So, so much of this comes back down to talking, yes. to communicating, and to that being curious. And I think sometimes, at least for me, that what holds me back from maybe reaching out or asking the question is fear. Mm-hmm. What are they going to think if I ask this? Are they going to think I'm dumb if I ask, you know, or whatever? I don't want them to get offended because, you know, fill in the blank. And in reality, I've I've changed the way I've been operating. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't backfired yet. And when I have a thought to do something that is random and, you know, text somebody or call somebody or whatever it is, I do it now. Mm-hmm. I don't listen to those those voices. The the longer I linger with that thought or that impression, then the um, more likely I am to talk myself out of it. And so I have tried to just, when I've got th- had this impression, just to immediately act upon it. And it's made such a difference for me and, and those feelings that I, I used to have so much of questioning things about, you know, the fear that I just talked about. But it hasn't backfired. People have appreciated that I've reached out. And I think when we talk to someone and we reach out in kindness or in love and concern and not judgment, that's that's the difference. They can feel that difference. I hope so anyway. But I think you bring a great point up in it, and that is that there are times when our inner self says, Maybe we should reach out. And then we, then we discount it 
Mm-hmm. We say, ah, no, I, I shouldn't do that. I, I remember, and, and you know the situation in that many, many years ago in, in our old neighborhood, there was a family that uh, I was told, oh, you don't want to associate with this family. They're, they, they've, they've got some different ideas and some, some different things that they maybe are not mainstream. And I had all these thoughts. I should go visit my, this family. I should go say hello, introduce myself. And it never happened. And a few years went by. And it was interesting because that person reached out to me and said, you know, I've wanted to say hello for, for a long time, but I haven't done it because you were kind of standoffish. And it made me realize that, yeah, sometimes we can be that way because we have these thoughts that we shouldn't bother this family. We shouldn't bother this person. We see some things that maybe don't look healthy, but I, it's none of my business. Mm-hmm. Is it our business? Yes, I think it is. I, and not not that you have to know the details, but I think that's, again, we weren't put on this earth to be alone. We were put here to connect with people. So I think I think it is our business, just even being a good neighbor and wanting to show that love. You know, many years ago, too, I saw a caption of a little child sitting next to another little child. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person had, one of them had his arm around this other little child who was crying. Mm-hmm. And, and the caption basically said, sometimes all we can do is cry with them. Mm-hmm. It's, and I would agree with you on that. Um, there's a researcher named Kristen Neff, and she has done a ton of research on self-compassion. But one of the three components that she, that she researched was this idea of common humanity, um, which basically says that we are all more similar than we are different. And I've never experienced homelessness, but when I see somebody who's homeless, I automatically have compassion for them because I, there's part of me that can imagine what that's like to, you know, my little bit that I can imagine what that's like of my privileged life I've lived. But I, I think that's where it comes in, right? We are all, we're all experiencing things individually, but we're yet, we're experiencing very similar things. That's so powerful. I, when you talked about someone that's homeless, I was introduced to uh, a woman who had lived for over 15 years on the street. Mm-hmm. And she was addicted to everything. And um, and then she became a dealer to to actually, you know, fund her addictions. And she dumpster dived and she did all these things. She saw friends die on the street because they froze to death. And then one thing led to another, and she ended up in in rehab for the umpteenth time. But this time, things changed, and something inside shifted, and that compassion and that empathy, and she changed that self-love and self-care. And, you know, the reason she initially went in wasn't for herself, it was because she knew that her younger siblings were following in her footsteps and she needed to get out to help them. And so it was that love of others that changed herself. And here she is now, I believe she's seven years clean. Wow, that's awesome. And the good she is doing, helping and serving the the homeless community mm-hmm. is amazing. And but when I met her, the first time I met her, I, I, you know, we were speaking on the phone. And next thing I know, I invited her out to dinner. And there was a love for this woman that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. 
because I thinking on the outside, what do we have in you know in common really? And in my privileged life, I've never lived on the street. I haven't known anyone. You know, I haven't ever been close to that. Um, those experiences, but I had this love and compassion, and she's taught me so much, and I'm so grateful for that. And so I love the concept that you know sometimes all we can do is just cry with them. And it's, again, that connection. We don't have to experience the very same thing to be able to connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I would agree because we all, we're all experiencing the same thing just in a different way. And, and I, th- I think the unique thing about this last year of 2020 and the pandemic is we all experienced the same thing. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world was experiencing the same thing. And we all... We're learning something new at the same time, which actually kind of made it on some hands easier, but other hands harder because everyone was stressed out. Everyone was learning and didn't really know what these feelings were because they were so foreign to us. You know, during the last couple of months, Annette and I have been talking a lot about what we've learned during COVID-19. And uh, we've, we've focused on, a, uh, on, on cycles we, we've talked about uh, the fear zone that many of us were in, you know, grabbing toilet paper and food off the shelves like there was like it was going out of style. And then we <laughs> talked about a learning zone where we begin to identify our emotions. Mm-hmm. And then the last zone is the growth zone. And uh, that growth zone is when we begin to start helping others and we see how we can help others. We start looking beyond ourselves. We live for the present, but we focus on the future. Mm-hmm. and our empathy that we have for others. you know. And I would hope that we are beginning to see more and more people in that growth zone. What has been your experience, Chelsea, with seeing those different waves of emotions from a year ago until today? Mm-hmm. I love the, how you broke that down. And um, the grief cycle, I would say, is similar to what we've all experienced. And I can't remember the researcher, but he came up with a six step in the grief cycle, which was making meaning. And I think that's what you're getting at is I think I've watched clients um, through that distress that we were all in and thinking that they couldn't do it and recognizing how much they can do. And it's been interesting, especially to watch my teenagers who struggle with school, um, like school refusal and whatnot, to see them now searching, searching out honors classes. I've had a couple of clients that are in that boat where they took something hard and they made meaning of it. And they're, they're putting that learning experience to use. That's powerful to, to think about this last year as grieving. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And when you when I look at it that way now, it's like, oh, look at what we we all went through an experience that we grieved together. Mm-hmm. But and and we're all that again, that grief cycle is different for all of us, right? And and there's not a perfect timeline, okay, you're gonna be here for so long and here for so long. But we go through all those steps, but meaning is vital. Mm-hmm. And I think as we learn to add and find that meaning in in all of our lives and all of our experiences, that's when they really can become choice. Mm-hmm. Not that we'd want to go through them again. Oh, no, I would never choose to live through another pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but if we find that meaning, it makes it, I don't know, it, it makes it a little more precious. Yeah. 
I think it starts to switch that shame around. And when I think of grief in a literal term of losing somebody, I don't know that that's something we ever fully heal from, but I can make meaning of it and I can continue to live on and I can continue to find joy with that, that precious person that I've lost too. And we can make meaning of it. We can make meaning of, of this experience that we all had. Is there anything that you've been thinking about that you've wanted to share or some thoughts that we haven't touched on that just come to mind? Um, I would say that we are all more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. And we're more powerful when we're together and we unite with each other. And when we carry that yoke together, when we rely on those that are around us and um, when we recognize our shame stories and we continue to live on even with that shame story and make meaning of it sums up everything we've been talking about. Mark, do you have a thought before we close here? No, I'm just impressed with, with Chelsea's wisdom. I, we, we've learned a lot through this session here as we've, we've talked about emotional resilience, as we've talked about shame. I mean, we've kind of gone all over the place, but we've had to in order to identify what we can do, not only to help those around us, but more importantly, what we can do to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our conversation with Chelsea Bowman as we've discussed so many things, the importance of being connected and how God didn't intend us to be alone, but he wanted us and had every intention for us to come to this earth and and connect and to understand the different emotions and cycles in our life and how we can be more resilient. Each of us have a story to share. Author Brene Brown reminds us that owning our own story is the bravest thing you will ever do. The stories and experiences our guests share inspire us, as well as help us to grow and connect with others. We invite you to become a part of Karen the Load community through social media, as well as to share the site with those you know. We are stronger together. Keep Karen. Karen.